0: Hey, Money Multipliers, welcome back to another episode of The Money Multiplier Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Kessler, and today I'm joined here again with my good friend, John. So, John, what's going on, man?
1: Hey, everybody. How are you doing? I'm very excited to be back. Uh, This should be a fun episode for you guys. This will be a continuation of last episode we did, but we're actually going to get into the nitty gritty this time and talk about some of the examples of you know, our own history in the recent past. So I'll let Hannah say a few things and then we'll dive right in.
0: So um, we're coming around to 23 different cities this year in 2023. I know we've been talking about it a lot here on the social medias and broadcasting it out, but now the registration links are live. As always, you can go to our website, themoneymultiplier.com and up on the homepage, you can always find all the events for the full calendar year too. So um, let's get into it. And before we dive in, I guess I want to recap what we talked about in our Valentine's Day episode. So we discussed the creation of the Federal Reserve System and how the six men who wanted to control the banking function and how it relates to the free market. You know, we discussed the game of how the Fed creates money out of thin air and how the FDIC is honestly a load of crap and how all the loss then just gets pushed to the American taxpayers. So so anyways, John, do you want to say a few things before we get into the real life examples up to date of how the Fed interfered with this free market?
1: No, I I think that pretty much sums it up. You know, a lot of what we talked about in the last episode will should start to make a little bit more sense um, as we're going to get into the examples. Um, if I had to add one thing, you know, we know enough now that just the banking cartel of the Federal Reserve System with the United States Um, And this is a little bit above and beyond. Um, But as long as the U.S. dollar um, holds World Reserve currency status, the American Federal Reserve system will be a banking cartel for the entire world. Um, Mm -hmm. That's just a a little shower thought I had the other day. I thought I'd pop it in. But Yeah. yeah, no, that's all I got.
0: I'm going to even touch on that a little bit uh, later on, too, as we go through a few of these stories and topics. Uh, I got some more to add to that thought, too, John. Um, and as well, it's actually a Sunday afternoon as John and I are getting together recording. And uh, on Sunday afternoons, you know, uh, what I like to do, I like to sometimes go out to breweries. Actually, a passion of mine or a dream of mine one day would to even own a brewery. And so today I'm, I'm having some rainbow sherbet, a, a sour uh, brew here so grab a beverage grab a snack or just just join us join us on the fun of these stories as we dive into it i was actually thinking about before we even hopped on too um how john and i uh, connected even further cuz i know we we met and then um further on in our of uh, friendship he actually helped me get hired for bike week to work down on the main street brewery so so it's a brewery over there called the world's uh, the world's most famous brewery and uh, lovely people that run that place. But uh, during the bike week, because, uh, you know, I live out here in Daytona Beach, Florida, for that full week, it uh, gets jam-packed on Main Street. So I collected a few uh, bucks that week because uh, John helped me get hired there. So thank you, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, no problem. It was a blast having you.
0: <laughs> All right, well, let's dive into it. So let's walk through some real world examples where the Fed did intervene with this free market and the outcome that it led to. So we'll go through the the examples that we have listed in the book, but I'm going to highlight a few that have impacted my thinking the most and some that one of y'all can relate to because it happened not too long ago.
1: Yeah, and, you know, there, there's a laundry list of these stories that are pretty much identical. They follow the the same rough hierarchy of how the events occur. Um, but the ones we've picked out, um, and, and these are just a couple of the ones uh, uh, Griffin has in his book. Um, they're the ones that we think are pretty, like, they're, they're the key shifting moments of um, whether it's the policy that, you know, I guess, whether it's the... Um, monetary policy of our own government you know these were I guess big paradigm shifts in our thinking so uh, we'll get right in with the first example Um, we'll start with Penn Central Railroad. Penn Central is one of the nation's largest railroads um, with 96,000 employees and almost a quarter million employees at its height. Um, Penn Central was originally created in 1846 and even held esteem amongst investors for its reliable dividends From 1846 to 1946, it never cut dividends. Even during the Civil War, it never cut its dividends. But by 1970, it was one of America's largest bailouts. It was in debt to almost every bank and entity that would lend it money. Um, They had well surpassed the staying afloat point. Lenders had sent officers to serve on Penn Central's board of directors, um, and as Hannah said in the last episode, the one who has the gold makes the rules, right? So, you know, lenders were, you know, being there, you know, were there in person, you know, organizing management they're directing them of, you know, how to save our money, so to speak, is what they were doing. Um, but as collateral for their lending, most of the banks have been given stock as a condition of their financing. So it was in the best interests of the banks for the company to be profitable, Um, and to operate at a minimal loss. Um, So what we have here is a bank-owned and bank-operated railroad. Um, And the reason we selected this one is this is one of the first major instances where this philosophy of a bank-owned and bank-operated company backfired pretty roughly on the the American taxpayers. So I'll let you say a few things on it real quick, Hannah.
0: -hmm no I want to take a moment and really reflect on what you just said the one who has the gold makes the rules so these lenders of those banks since these Bank officers to serve on Penn Central's board. And I think that's a very, very powerful thing that people have to look at from the organization or the structure of that company. And quickly, I just want to read a little snippet here from the book as to kind of how this can play into the American public and our Free market, again, of what we're trying to do, trying to break away from these financial bonds and to live a good, prosperous life for our families, right? So just quickly, on May 21st, a month before the railroad went under, David Bevin, Penn Central's chief financial officer, Privately informed representatives of the company's banking creditors that its financial condition was so weak, it would have to postpone an attempt to raise $100 in desperately needed operating funds through a bond issue. Instead, the railroad would seek some kind of government loan guarantee, which we talked about this last episode, right? What are the government loan guarantees and what those mean? In other words, unless the railroad could manage a federal bailout, it would have to close down. This following day, Chase Manhattan's trust department sold 134,000, a little over that, shares of its Penn Central holdings. Before May 28th, when the public was informed of the postponement of the bond issue, Chase sold another 128,000 shares. David Rockefeller, the bank's chairman, denied Chase had acted on the basis of the inside information. So I'm not going to really go here because I really don't want to talk politics, but isn't it a little funny that these big operators of this Penn Central and now the banks, they went in and sold off all of their shares because they had the inside information of the declining of the financial status of Penn Central before the public even knew about the disinformation. I mean, honestly, it's a little unfair. And now it's actually illegal today to do something like that. But we won't go there.
1: We'll we'll say it's illegal. But we all know at some point, some people still find their ways with it, right? Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: But yeah, you know, going back through just to reiterate some of the stuff Hannah said, you know, what the banks did with their control uh, of Penn Central in, in their, their very weak, vulnerable state was pretty clever um, to be able to, you know, get the, reach their benefits and rewards of their own, uh, whether dim dim wittedness or their own purposeful actions to run the company into the ground. Um, but simply put, the, or they let the management just run wild. Um, you know, we won't get into all the stuff here, but you know, they there is expansions and they even went into the real estate market and all of this extra spending that was just really not in the foundational elements of being a railroad. It was just, you know, money in, money out. Um, So as bank money was pumped in, they, they called for, like I said, expansions and record breaking dividends. You know, this was one of the foundational blue chip stocks at the time. So what this did was create a sense of false prosperity and dramatically inflated the railroad stock prices. Um, So what the bankers had engineered was a three-pronged bonanza for themselves. They, one, received record-breaking dividends, two, they earned interest on loans that funded those dividends, and three, it meant that they would be able to unload all of their stocks at these inflated prices, after dividends, of course, um, onto the unknowing public. Um, So timing was everything in this maneuver so much so that the company's cash crisis They engineered it to come on a weekend ready to call for bankruptcy the following Monday Um, This critically gave Fed chairman Arthur Burns time to spread the word that this the system being the federal reserve system um, was eager to help in this venture uh, or in this bailout I should say Um, so by Sunday the New York branch of the Fed had contacted ten of the largest banks and told them that just for them, the discount window would be completely open. Simply put, the Fed was ready to create money out of nothing for the purpose of lending to the banks to give to the railroad.
0: However, banks were only really interested if the government could co-sign to guarantee these loans on the back of American taxpayers. You know, the lobbyists had descended on to Washington to plead the case to Congress. You know, union reps, the bankers. I mean, even the Navy came forward to argue survival of Penn was in the best interest of the people. Thus, the Emergency Rail Act of 1970 authorized $125 million in loan guarantees. And honestly, that's nearly a $1 billion, billion with a B in today's money. So let's look at the situation. We have a company owned and operated by the banks going to the government to guarantee loans from those same banks. You can't make this up but what is so astonishing about this is that it doesn't solve the problem at hand after a while penn central found themselves back underwater where no one could save them
1: yeah you know this this was a railroad that had been operational for a hundred and whatever years you know it's it's just a natural decline of the times you know that there's some sometimes you just gotta let companies die and take their course right Mm -hmm. um so following this failure the federal government intervened and nationalized the company um, and nationalized is just a big fancy word for government owned um, in 1971 they split penn central into two companies conrail and amtrak i'm sure you have all heard of amtrak you probably haven't heard of conrail um conrail would take over the cargo operations of the the uh, the railroad or the the train company um and amtrak the passenger side of the business conrail was operated or was created as a private company with the government owning 85% of its shares and the employees owning the other 15%. Fortunately, the government holdings were sold in a public offering uh, back in 1987. Um, Since then, coincidentally, Conrail has been a profitable business, paying taxes every year instead of consuming them. On the other hand, Amtrak continues to operate under government supervision at a loss year after year, Um, some of the numbers on this. Between 1990 and 2009, Amtrak cost the American taxpayers $23 billion, billion with a B, and and I actually looked it up. Amtrak's budget proposal for fiscal year 2023, listen to this, this is just outright crazy to me. Um, Fiscal year 2023, they were seeking $3.3 billion in government grants with their own projected revenues of 3.1 billion. So Amtrak themselves are saying, yeah, to operate another year, we're just gonna eat 0.2 of a billion dollars, right? So now Hannah, I, don't, I won't ever claim to be a business expert, but that math really doesn't add up to me.
0: <laughs> and it's like dad says, you know what dad says all, all the time till he's blue in the face? He says, hey, it doesn't matter how much you make, it only matters how much you keep. And uh, I agree with you, math math ain't math in there. (laughs) (laughs) And and honestly, that's just one story. Let's pivot. Let's talk about Chrysler's 1978 bailout. Chrysler was the nation's sixth largest employer, absolutely gutted by the oil crisis in the previous years. Chrysler was on the verge of bankruptcy and rolled over its debt time and time again to the point where banks would not let the game go on anymore. That unless the government was to jump into the ring. So the pattern should be very clear by now as lobbyists, managers, union reps and bankers, they went down to Washington again. They pled their case to Congress. They argued that if Chrysler, which employed some 250,000 people, was allowed to fail, families would encounter crippling hardships economic chaos would ensue throughout the country and unemployment would skyrocket if congress did not save them rinse and repeat
1: yeah and you know these are building off of you know we last episode we used that analogy of the football game with all the plays the fed and bankers are going to run to eventually get to this bailout state right so this is what we're talking about here um and at this point the federal government had put themselves in a little bit of a pickle bailouts are the norm now with other large corporations and bank rescues of the prior 10 years um, and the reality of it is for our elect- elected officials is that none of them want to be the person that leads the charge of letting a big ba- large corporation fail because um, you know one of my favorite lines i forgot where i heard it years ago i'm sure it's pretty popular but what's a politician's number one job to get reelected, right? So if you're the politician that lets Chrysler fail, that's never going to happen. So this was a prime example of government intervention in the free market. So as always, with a stroke of a pen, a bill was passed uh, directing the Treasury to guarantee up to one and a half billion dollars of new loans to Chrysler.
0: But now, with this, the banks had to agree to play nice as well. They agreed to write down 600 million of old loans and exchange an additional 700 million for preferred stock. These moves were made to appear to be huge concessions on the banks. However, this was the plan all along. All that changed was the bank's loans to Chrysler were now guaranteed by the American taxpayer. And if the government were to allow Chrysler to fail now, it wouldn't be their fault. Not to mention the added benefits of all their preferred stock, which skyrocketed in value after the bailout announcement. So I I really wish we could go over all of these, but I have to fast forward a few years. So, John, do you want to lead us on into the next one?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I just want to go back real quick. And one of the key points right there is the banks wrote down six hundred million dollars of loans in exchange for seven hundred million dollars of preferred stock. Those loan write downs that are appear to be a concession of the bank are publicized very dramatically. You know, they're they're meant to show the public, hey, the banks are willing to play nice here. But you can clearly see with the numbers that they right off the bat made a hundred million, right? So that that's that's kind of what we're dealing with and what really frustrates us. Um, but yeah, next we're gonna have to talk about Continental Illinois. Um, and if you guys have ever read the book uh, Thirteen Bankers, we might we should do that one sometime too. Um, okay. There's actually a chapter called "Too Big to Fail," um, and reading all, all about the Continental Illinois bailout—it's word for word, kind of <laughs> I guess idea for idea, all about the the concepts in that book. Um, So Continental Illinois was one of the the, or was the nation's seventh largest bank back in the early 1980s um, with assets of about 42 billion dollars. Now remember that 42 billion Uh, Continental Illinois was even revered as one of the five best managed companies in the country. So however, these opinions were either an outright lie by the people with the ethos to talk about it uh, or spectacular failure of perception by the people who had those opinions and outsiders that saw the bank's profitability as a sign of strength when in reality it was actually a pretty telltale sign of irresponsibility and reckless lending
0: so on the fourth of july weekend 1982 continental illinois began to unravel the failure of penn square in oklahoma lit the tinder bundle The peak of the Mexican and Argentinian debt crisis added fuel to the fire. Daily headlines of corporate bankruptcy after bankruptcy made continental Illinois situation dire. Soon, depositors started withdrawing their money. The bank even started selling CDs at unrealistically high rates to stop the bleeding, but it had little effect. By 1984, the bank sold off its profitable credit card operation to give it a cash infusion. Incredibly, though, for the majority of the consumers, the bank appeared sound despite the chaos behind closed doors. So eventually, the first flame had spread at 11.39 a.m. on Tuesday, May 8th. A British news agency reported that European and Japanese banks had raised their interest rates for Continental Illinois.
1: And this is all big stuff. There was no tangible evidence that Continental Illinois was so deep in the hole, especially to the general consumer and to the public. But it really didn't matter um, at this point. You know, once the news article Uh, took off by the next morning, uh, nearly a billion dollars had flooded from the bank. So remember, net assets or total assets of 42 billion in one day, they lost a billion dollars of deposits. And this was the beginning of the world's first electronic bank run. Uh, Like Hannah and I uh, explained in the last episode, uh, as people started their day and saw the news, the race was on all over the world. Um, By Friday, the bank had been forced to borrow $3.6 billion just to cover its consumer withdrawals. Um, An effort led by Morgan Guarantee was proposed to float the bank a temporary line of credit, but it was too little too late. By the end of the following week, Continental Illinois' outflow had surpassed $6 billion, 14% of its total assets.
0: The funny thing is, though, up to that point, almost all the money had escaped continental Illinois was at the institutional level. The average consumer was unaware of the situation at hand. On the outside, the banks appeared to be running at normal. It wasn't until you stepped into the wire room where the situation be- became dire. If you would have been able to watch the bank's assets on the com- on the computer screen, it was a whole different story. I mean, 50 million to Asia here, 25 million to Germany there. From the beginning though, there was just one question how were they going to fleece the taxpayer to cover their losses because there was never a doubt that the fed would step in again
1: yeah and it was a question of how much would the fed help you know the arguments to congress were very easily simply put they were too big Um, they argued that if continental illinois was allowed to fail other banks, not just in the United States, but around the world, would suffer the consequences. This was the golden moment for the Fed and FDIC to really flex their muscles. Uh, also, it was a pivotal, pivotal moment in the philosophy of banking. Um, you know, we can theorize what benefits and outcomes would have happened to the financial and banking industry if Continental Illinois was allowed to fail, but they weren't. So here we are, you know, the world didn't learn its its lesson, people still continue to live with the false sense of security they have over their deposits and banks continue to operate fraudulently and recklessly.
0: And actually take it back to our last recording together, that Valentine's Day recording, when I asked the the public and I said, hey, why are you all so gung ho to make your deposits in somebody else's bank? But you act out of scarcity when you're trying to capitalize on your banking uh, system that you have, i.e. your whole life policy designed for high cash value, the Nelson Nash way. Anyways, let's continue on. Uh,
1: Can I just add one thing real quick here, too? Yeah, Um, yeah, you have to you can look at every banking bank bailout, you know, of last however long. And you'll see that your average customer is the last one to be able to get access to their money, right? If they even can at all.
0: So the final bailout play comes to the rescue with a pretty clever maneuver. The nation's other larger banks agreed to come to the rescue by buying up the bad loans and stock to the sum of some 500 million. This was the small price to pay for the federal guarantee of those bad loans. The true grunt came with a $4.5 billion sale of bad loans to the FDIC. Yes, folks, the FDIC is now operating as a bank with these garbage loans and another infusion of $1 billion by the Fed directly. Again, they're just printing this money. They have a printing pe- press right there in their back door. So in return, the federal government assumed 80% of the total stock of continental Illinois. By 1986, the nationalized bank had cost the American taxpayer $9.24 billion. The remnants of these this continental illinois had remained a burden on the american taxpayers till 1994 when it was then acquired by bank of america
1: so yeah this is actually you know this is actually a good time for a, a really good quote that griffin added uh by fed chairman paul Volcker at the time um he says in response to the whole continental illinois bailout this operator quote this operation is the most basic function of the federal reserve it was why it was founded, end quote. So that is the chairman of the Fed directly saying that the Fed's purpose is to bail out banks. Um, <laughs> can't really get much clearer than that. Um, this of course is uh, a direct comment from the people involved that had a true purpose um, or about the true purpose of the Federal Reserve System. Uh, It's pretty easy to see from all the examples that Griffin discusses how the FDIC covers large banks at the expense of small banks. Um, Continental Illinois is a perfect example of that. The bank only paid six and a half million dollars to insure deposits of over three billion. Um, You know even further there's actually another direct quote from FDIC chairman uh, Irvine Sprague where he says quote small banks uh, proportional, pay proportionally more for their insurance, but have far less chance of a continental-style bailout. End quote. Again, a guy directly involved with this is saying this. This is what it's for. Um, so this is further supported by the 43 other bank failures that happened surrounding the six months of the Continental Illinois bailout. Um, in most cases, the small banks were just absorbed by a much larger one, like Bank of America was to uh, Continental Illinois. So I'll let you take it from here, Hannah.
0: Yeah. And I think I, I think it's one of the objectives, right? I mean, this is one of the objectives of why the six men met at Jekyll Island. Big banks, they have the status that they can act recklessly. And because of this, they can always bail out. They always have that bailout from the outside guarantee intervention. So this kind of scares the small banks away, in in my opinion. Well, I think it's true, but it scares these small banks away so that they will get gobbled up by these larger banks because now this lessens the competition in the playing field. I mean, this is one of their objectives. They want to eliminate competition so they can be the ones there to manage and dictate the cash flow of what's going on in our economy. Again, just my opinion, though. So lastly, let's discuss, let's discuss one that kind of hits close to home for a lot of my folks. Because a lot of the people that I I do talk to or teach to, y'all are in the real estate world, okay? Because, I mean, honestly, a lot of folks in the real estate world, y'all are very heavy on cash flow and really understand cash flow. So, I mean, let's talk about the subprime meltdown of 2008, You know, this 2008 time came because of these decades of the low, low interest rates that were made to the public. So, what happened is is that because of these low interest rates, the public, investors, and lenders have these high hopes to make these high profit margins. So knowing that the Fed would bail them out, banks starting, started signing loans left and right to the point that they would even overappraise properties and issue these loans greater than the property value. Y- y'all remember F- Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? I, I remember that they-, they fed off of these low-income families during this time. This was the rise of the boom. They would issue as many of these subprime loans as possible. However, with this boom that's caused by manipulation, this is always going to come to an end at some point, known as the bust. When this did happen, rampant inflation, high taxes, loss of jobs, this all caused this recessionary period in this time back in the 2008.
1: Yeah. So, you know, yet again, another bailout occurred from the Fed with over a trillion dollars of newly created money um, out of nothing. By the end of 2008, bailout uh, of just the financial service industry had reached over $7 trillion. This was more than twice the cost of World War II. Um, You know, one of the biggest things I want to point out is that the Fed is already operating globally. You know, this is 2008-2009. Rumors were flying and soon evidence was pointing that billions of dollars were going overseas. You know, shouldn't the, the purpose of the American Federal Reserve System be to help America first? Um, so, you know, with the billions of dollars going overseas to other banks and foreign countries, the Federal Reserve System actually announced that it would bail out European banks, you know, and just off the top of my head, you know, this was Greece, Spain. Uh, I'm sure there's a handful of others to throw in there. Um, help them out without congressional approval. Bypassing Congress was, you know, not new news is it was never really an obstacle to, for, to, for them to be able to do this, um, but this means the Fed is now operating as a bailout money machine for the entire world. You know, money for all these bailouts comes in other countries, will be created by the Fed at the expense of the American taxpayers without our consent or knowledge.
0: I think that's is big news. That's huge news that a lot of people don't know about. And my question is, why isn't the media and the press all over this? Oh, right. Because the one who makes the gold makes the rules, right? So the saga continues with these bailouts being asked because welfare and Social Security, you know, they still need to come in. They still need to get paid. So now we're operating to the point where bailouts are now paying off past bailouts. And now we're just in this continuation of this financial hamster wheel going on and on and on. So the cost of the funding, the states, the local governments, the central banks, you know, foreign banks, endless war, et cetera, this is all going to crush and demolish the middle class. So I want y'all to wake up, people, and I want you to start taking back the control of your money and your financial life. Because just as like Nelson Nash said, if you know what's going on, you'll know what to do. The Fed is acting against the public interest. Again, just my opinion. But I say that we need to abolish the Federal Reserve System, tie our dollar back to the gold standard, and let the public operate in a free market. That's just me. That's just my humble opinion yet one again. So I don't know, John, you don't have to share, but I mean, do you have any opinions on what's going on with the bailouts before we close out today's episode?
1: I, I don't necessarily have anything to comment with uh, regards to that. But you know, one kind of food for thought thing that I want to leave all listeners Um, and this was actually something that I had completely skipped over my mind, but I actually went back on and looked, is take a look and see if you can find, you know, we we talked about reserve ratios in the last episode. You know, this is a fundamental um, principle of banks, is the reserve ratios that are set by the Fed. You know, this is a requirement that all banks that hold a, a federal charter have to maintain. Go ahead and try to look up what that reserve requirement is today. And I think you will be terrified, enlightened, whatever adjective you want to use uh, about what that number is. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And actually, maybe we'll even link the article in, in the description notes of this show. So it's a very, very interesting article, actually, that you sent to me, John. So I appreciate that. Always keeping me informed. So. As always, I hope y'all enjoyed this episode of Bailouts and Bullies, and uh, we'll catch you next time. As I always ask you, do your dollars make sense? And um, give us a like. Uh, Tell us how you're liking these um, series as they go on. You know, we have more books that we can dive into. Just bringing the knowledge out to y'all, to the public. And um, give us a follow, subscribe, five stars if you enjoy it. And please write us in questions, okay? We're here to help you and help serve you and your families. Until next time, I'll catch you then.